You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Glad you're here today. If you're a guest with us, my name is Jordan. I serve as one of our pastors here at Redeemer. And um, man, what a, what a gift and privilege it is to be gathered together with God's people, to sing of his goodness to open his word. I want to say before we jump in today, uh, what a great Sunday we had last week. It was just such an incredible, encouraging time to be together to celebrate the resurrection. We're going to continue to celebrate the resurrection as we do every week, but it was a special day. I want to say special thanks to all of you who served. I know we had a lot of volunteers that were serving above and beyond last week, so thank you to those of you who served. There's some um, of our volunteers who served last week that are back there again uh, teaching our kiddos this week, and so just grateful for the, the spirit of a, a servanthood in this church, and what a day, a great day of celebration that that was last week. Well, if you have your Bible, I would invite you to meet me in the Gospel of Mark. This is our 45th sermon in the Gospel of Mark. Today, we are wrapping up a series in the Gospel of Mark that we've been in for 14 months. We took a few breaks, but we've worked through this entire book, and what a joy it has been to preach and teach this book. What an incredible book it is, a book that I believe God has used over the centuries to put the beauty and the glory and the power of the person of Jesus Christ on display for us to see. What I want to do today is I want to take some time to recap what we've seen in the gospel of Mark. So that's what we'll do first. We'll recap Mark a bit rather than just kind of turning the page and moving on right into the next thing. I think it's good to reflect a bit, zoom back out and see what we've seen in Mark. And then I do want to spend some time uh, dealing with the interesting ending or endings that we have in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you don't know what that means, you'll find out here in a minute. We'll, we'll look at that together. Um, let me pray for us. I do want you to know, by the way, next, so next week I'll, I'll preach a sermon out of one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Psalm 51. And then the following week, April 30th, we will start a new series. We're going to jump into Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, the, the 1 Corinthians. And we'll study 1 Corinthians uh, for the really the, the rest of this year. So that's the, the preaching plan. Let me pray, and we'll, and we'll wrap up Mark's gospel. Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is none like you. And we thank you for your goodness that we just sang about. There is none like you. Thank you that you invite us through your Son, Jesus Christ. You invite us into your goodness to live in your goodness. You've pursued us. You've sought after us. We thank you for that good news. For those of us who have received that news and claimed Christ as our Savior and crowned him as our King, I pray, Lord, you would teach us what it means to continue to follow you in discipleship all of our days, to live our lives for what, is, for what matters most, what is ultimate reality, and that is you and your kingdom. Help us there, Lord. We are sinners who struggle to live in light of your resurrection, and so we pray for your spirit to continue to be our guide as a church. I pray for those who are here today that maybe don't know you or haven't seen you clearly, haven't crowned you as their king, that as we wrap up uh, Mark's gospel, that they would hear Mark's claim and that they would receive you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember when we began this series, we said that the gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, who accompanied Peter. He also traveled with the apostle Paul. We read about that in the book of Acts. In many ways, um, John Mark was like a secretary of sorts for Peter. And so what we have in the gospel of Mark is really Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus, of Jesus's life, of Jesus's ministry, of Jesus's message. 
The Gospel of Mark was written roughly mid to late 50s, 55-ish AD is what most scholars would think. And so it was the first gospel account that was written. Matthew and Luke, they really take Mark's gospel and they build upon it and they color it in and they give more of Jesus's teachings and a bit more detail here and there. But Mark's style is really unique. Mark's style, as we've seen, it's a fast pace telling of the story of Jesus. It's punchy. It gives us Jesus's essential actions. It puts, us right, it puts it, Jesus right in our face. And this is Mark's purpose. Mark writes with one purpose in mind, and that purpose is to call us to make a decision about Jesus. He wants you to make a decision. Who is Jesus? From the very beginning, Mark puts this strong claim in our face. Look back with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. From the very beginning, uh, Mark says this. He makes a strong claim. He says, Jesus Christ the Son of God, is the world's only Savior and true King. From the very beginning, in Mark 1.1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This this is an introduction that would have been received by the original hearers as one that was quite scandalous. That word gospel in Mark 1.1 is a historical word. It's the Greek word euangelion. It means a message that is heralded. And and Mark is playing here on something that happened in real human history. When Caesar Augustus uh, sent out a decree in BC 9, 9 BC. It was on his birthday, September 23rd. And Augustus sends out a decree. And he says, as king of the Roman Empire, he says, today is a new day. This is the beginning of the gospel The good news, it's a message, a euangelion, a message of good news to the world. This decree goes out, and this is the exact exact wording, the beginning of the good news for the world. And it's this message, and he basically is saying, uh, there's a new way of the world. The Romans, Caesar called it Pax Romana, that the world is going to be ruled by Caesar, who is its savior and its king and its peace. Roman peace will fill the world. And so this decree goes out, and, and, and literally in the decree, in B9, uh, 9 BC, Caesar says this. He says, from now on, we will mark time differently. The first day of the year is my birthday, September 23rd. This was the decree. It's a new day, new time. Do you see what Mark is doing here? Mark is using that same language, and he's saying the same decree. This, this is the beginning of the, 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 the euangelion, the, the message of a real historical message of Jesus Christ, not of Caesar, but of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the true king. He builds upon this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. Look at verse 14 through 15 of chapter 1. He says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the, there it is again, euangelion, the gospel, the decree of God. This is God's decree, saying the time is fulfilled. In other words, what is he saying? It's a new time. (laughs) We're going to mark time differently now. It's a new time. Time of the kingdom of God has come. God's king has come. God's kingdom, God's rule, God's peace, God's salvation, not Pax Romana, not peace through Roman power, peace through crucifying our enemies, peace through building up a military and and oppressing our enemies and ruling the world. It's God's kingdom is breaking in through God's king, Jesus Christ. Repent and believe this message. Turn to Jesus. 
Mark starts his gospel off with a bang. Will you see who Jesus is? This is the claim of Mark's gospel. This is the claim of Christianity, Jesus Christ, the world's only Savior and the world's true King. And from this point forward, here's what we've seen in the gospel of Mark. Mark puts Jesus's life and ministry right in front of our face. And he says, will you believe it? Will you believe this claim, this euangelion? Will you believe this historical message of the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus? And if you remember, we broke this study of Mark's gospel up really around two questions. Part one, verse chapters one through eight, we looked at and we said the question that Mark puts before us is who is this Jesus? In other words, Mark wants to ask us this question as we read, who do you say that Jesus is? And so through the first eight chapters, we saw Jesus' mighty power. Mark shows us his miraculous power, his power uh, to forgive sins, his his power over uh, Satan and demons, his power over nature. And we saw miracle after miracle. And Mark says, who do you say that this Jesus is? Mark wants to force us to make a decision to get off the fence. In other words, the purpose of Mark writing, especially in the first part of his gospel, is to rid us of indifference with Jesus. Now, there are a lot of people in our culture who like Jesus kind of the way I like sushi. I, I like sushi as long as it's mild. Sushi starts to get too sushi-y, and I'm out. And you know what I mean, don't you? It starts to get a little too sushi-y, and I'm, no thanks. But I like, I like sushi when it's simple and when it's mild. And there are a lot of people in our culture today that like Jesus as long as you don't get too Jesus-y. You know what I mean? Like as long as you don't take his words and his claims like too far, too seriously. Like I like Jesus. He, he helps me, you know, Jesus and coffee in the morning and kind of give me the boost that I need. But if you get too Jesus-y, like if you start to take him too seriously, if you start to really like say that I've got to give my whole life to him, crown him as king, give my time and my money and my devotion to him and his call, like to lift, if you start to take his words a little too seriously, I'm out. There are a lot of people in our culture that have indifference with Jesus. They like Jesus as long as you don't get too Jesus-y. And Mark is writing to rid us of this indifference. In fact, I want you to hear the words of a a Scottish preacher named John Duncan, who, when preaching through the gospel of Mark in the 1800s, he says this about Mark writing to rid us of our indifference. He He says, Mark puts us in a trilemma. He creates a trilemma for the reader. He says this, he says, Christ is either first deceived mankind as a conscious fraud, So in other words, he's just duped everybody that has followed him for centuries. He's just, he's a deceiver. Or two, he himself was deluded and self-deceived. So he was just out of his mind. (laughs) So he's either duped everybody or he himself is deluded. Or three, he's divine. He is who he says he is. C.S. Lewis picked up on, uh, on Duncan's work here in his book, Mere Christianity, and Lewis writes about this trilemma of the gospel. He, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people in our culture often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. A lot of people in our culture say this, don't they? Jesus is a good man, good moral teacher, but I don't 
let's not, let's not get too Jesus-y. Lewis goes on and he writes, this is the one thing we must not say. I think this quote will be on the screen. He says, a man who was merely a man and said this sort of thing, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. Do you see the trilemma of the gospel? Mark is writing with, to rid us of our indifference about Jesus. Lewis Duncan, they say he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And everyone must come to a decision about Jesus. Every single one of us that hears the Evangelion, the historical proclamation about Jesus Christ, must come to a decision about Jesus. You either see him for who he truly is, the only savior in the world's true king, and you crown him, or you reject him. And some of us, some people in our culture, reject Jesus without even realizing it, because we don't crown him. We just kind of have a mild Jesus in our life. This is the people Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You either crown him or you reject him. And Mark writes with this purpose to help us see Jesus for who he truly is. Mark writes with each moment, with each miracle, with each mighty uh, power of Jesus Christ. And he says, see him, see his beauty, see his power. Why would you reject him? Why would you reject him? What a savior he is. What a king. And so this was part one of Mark's gospel. Who is this Jesus? What will you do with him? And then we looked at the second part of Mark's gospel where Mark is really writing then and, and, and he's writing, remember we get to chapter eight and Jesus said, this is kind of the, the turning point in Mark's gospel, chapter eight. And Jesus says to Peter, who do others say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of God. And then the, 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 the narrative turns a bit. And then the question becomes, what does it mean then to follow him as the Christ? What does it mean? What does it look like to crown him as king? This is the second question. What does it mean to truly follow Jesus in discipleship? And so we started walking through the second part of Mark's gospel. And Mark shows us this. We see in chapter 8, verse 34 through 38, where Jesus says he gathers the crowds together. And he, and he tells his disciples, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, Jesus is defining for us what it means to really follow him in discipleship, to truly crown him, claim him as savior and crown him as king. And the first thing that Jesus says is that we would give up on the things of this world. We would die to the things of this world. That's what he means when he says, take up your cross and follow him. The disciple of Jesus has forfeited the fact that any measure of life and significance can actually be found in this world of sin and death. Like I've given up on that. I've gotten over that lie that life and happiness and fulfillment can be found in this world of sin and death. I'm not putting my stock in the world, but I'm putting my stock in Christ. I'm putting my stock in Jesus as king and in his coming kingdom. 
Jesus goes on and he says in chapter 9, verse 35, what does it mean to follow him? Well, we give up on self-seeking uh, seeking life in the world. He also says that we give up on self-serving. We give up on a self-serving life. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus says this. He calls his disciples and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Jesus goes on. He says, the son of man came not to serve, but to be served, to give his life as a ransom of many. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, we, we give up on seeking life in the world and we give up on self-serving and we come to trust and to believe that life is found in serving Jesus and serving others, serving his kingdom. In chapter 10, verse 15, Mark is continuing to paint this picture for us. What does it mean to follow Jesus? He tells us that Jesus says that if we're going to enter the kingdom, we must come like a child. So we, we, uh, we, we give up on self-saving. So self-seeking, self-serving, and self-saving. In other words, the, the world tells us that we need to get more independent as we grow up. <laughs> and Jesus is actually saying, no, you need to get more dependent. You need to get more dependent upon Christ in all things. You must come like a child. You must come to him humble, admitting that I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the strength. In fact, the mature that you get in Christ, the, 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 more, that you, the more that you get, that you admit that you, the needier that, the needier that you are, the more that you admit, the needier that you are. As you mature in Christ, you actually start to realize the, great, the magnitude of your need. Your neediness doesn't get smaller. You actually realize it's bigger and you get more and more dependent upon Jesus. His call, Mark shows us, is counterintuitive to our nature. That's the point. The, hum, human, the sinful human nature does not, want to look, uh, does not want to look to God, but wants to look to the world and wants to look within. And Mark is showing us, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to admit that, that I need Christ actually to change me. I need his spirit to change me. I need to relearn. I need to learn to live a new way as a servant of Christ. And then Mark wants his disciples to see that not only is his call counterintuitive to our nature, but Jesus' kingdom, life in Jesus' kingdom is counterintuitive to the ways of this world. And we see this as Mark walks us through Jesus' suffering. That life in Jesus' kingdom is counterintuitive to the ways of this world. Jesus gains victory through death. That seems pretty counterintuitive to the way of our world, doesn't it? He gains victory through death. Jesus accomplishes salvation through suffering. Jesus displays power and sacrifice. And this was an especially important point for Mark's original hearers, those who were experiencing suffering in the first century world. Christians who, were, who had trusted Christ, they, they, people who had saw who he was, they heard the claim and they trusted who he was. And they've given their life to follow him in discipleship, and now they're being persecuted. And this is an important point to them, that don't forget that Jesus' kingdom is counterintuitive to the ways of the world. Keep trusting him. Keep following him. See his victory through death. See his power through sacrifice. See salvation through suffering. And this is challenging to us in our world today, where it's so easy to be a casual Christian. And Mark wants us to see, wants us to hear Jesus' words that tell us that discipleship to Christ ought to cost us something in this life. So I just want to ask you that question. Has, has following Jesus cost you anything? Is it costing you anything? The call of Christ ought to cost us something. It's costly, but yet we can trust that in Jesus, he provides everything that we need. And so Mark writes, to rid us of our indifference, who is Jesus? 
Well, he is the only Savior. He is the world's true king. See him, confess him, claim him, crown him. And what does it mean to follow him? Well, it means that we must learn to live a new way. It's counterintuitive to our nature. So we must put off that nature and put on the ways of Christ, learning to value what he values, to love what he loves, to become like him, to live for him in his kingdom, not the ways of the world. It's unnatural, this call to discipleship. It's a call to learn and live the way of Jesus in all things. That's Mark's message. But there is an ending to Mark that we haven't touched. Meet me in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. There is a bit of what I'll call bonus content at the end of Mark's gospel that we haven't explored. Verses 9 through 20. You guys remember DVDs? Those were wild, weren't they? I tried to explain DVDs to my kids recently. I remember when we got our first DVD player. It was a moment. I would go to Walmart. Remember the DVD bins at Walmart? Just loaded, and you could be like three arms deep in the bins, hoping you might pull something out that was neat. I would spend hours at the DVD bins. Here's what I loved about DVDs. As opposed to VHS tapes, you'd pop a DVD in, and it would load up, and it would give you the contents of the movie, right? You know, more like that rewinding, fast-forwarding to get to the part of the movie that you like. Different scenes. But there was always at the end of every DVD bonus content. Do you remember this? It would be like scenes that didn't make the movie, and those are kind of cool watching those. Uh, this is not what Mark gives us. It's not that kind of bonus content. But sometimes there'd be like interviews with actors or with the director of the movie, and they're kind of reflecting and talking a bit about the movie and this and that. It's not really original to the script. Bonus content. I think what we have at the end of Mark, verses 9 through 20, is a bit of bonus content like this. There are two bonus bits. And depending upon your Bible, what publisher of the Bible that you have, you'll get these bonus bits a bit differently. So the first bonus bit, for you, if you have the ESV, it's probably in a footnote that comes after verse 8 before verse 9. And it says this, following the resurrection of Jesus, it says this, and all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterward, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Interesting. So Mark's gospel ends kind of abruptly. We looked at it last week. There's the risen Jesus, and he appears to Mary, and Mary and Salome, and he tells them to go tell Peter and the others, and then it just kind of stops. But then we get this bonus bit, and we get a second bonus bit, and if you have the ESV, this is likely bracketed, double bracketed, starting in verse 9 through 20. Let me read it for us. Again, picking up after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had casted out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and they told the rest, but they did not believe him. Afterward, he appeared to the, to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes is 
and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink or take in any deadly poison, it will not harm them. And they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of the Father. And they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Okay. In both of these little bonus bits, there is an emphasis. And it's an emphasis on the resurrected Jesus appearing and then the resurrected Jesus commissioning and sending his disciples into the world to proclaim the good news. And your Bible gives you these in either a footnote or double bracketed. There's probably even before you get to chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse nine, there's probably a bracket that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include nine through 20. Does your Bible say that? You see that in front of you? What does this mean? What do we make of this? Well, I'm glad you asked. You have to remember that ancient documents were written on scrolls. The printing press has only been around for about 500 years, five to 600 years. So ancient documents were written on scrolls. And if documents were going to be shared and circulated, that meant that they had to be copied by scribes, okay? And so Mark's gospel, written in mid to late 50 AD, was certainly written with the intent to be shared and to be circulated. It was a euangelion. Uh, uh, <laughs> it was meant to be circulated and shared broadly and then specifically to the early churches so that they would have a rock-solid account to be passed on through the generations of Jesus' life and teaching, Jesus' death and resurrection. And so it was certainly copied by scribes. And as time goes on, it's copied more and it's copied more. The same thing starts to happen with other New Testament documents as they're written. It's copied, and it's copied, and it's copied. Keep in mind, this is the case with any piece of ancient literature. If it's meant to be circulated, it's copied and copied and copied by scribes. Eventually, by the year 400 AD, the New Testament as a whole is being copied. As a whole book, it's being copied by scribes and copied and copied and copied and circulated. Which, by the way, I want you to know something. I want you to know how trustworthy this book is. I want you to know how unbelievably trustworthy this book is. Other ancient documents that are out there do not even come close. Not even, they can't even sniff in comparison the Bible when it comes to the number of manuscripts, ancient manuscripts that we have of the Bible. There are, it's such a reliable book. We have over 99 New Testament manuscripts that date back before the year 400 AD. 99. And we have dozens that go back even further than that. There, we even have sizable fragments of manuscripts that go all the way back to 90 AD. Unbelievable. There's no other piece of ancient literature that even comes close to the numbers of copies that we have of ancient manuscripts of the Bible. It's such a reliable book. So here's the point. Some of the earliest and oldest copies of Mark, when you go all the way back, some of the oldest ones that we have, they do not include verses 9 through 20. Hmm. So what do we make of this? The oldest of the oldest stop at verse 8. So let me share, let me share with you kind of a few thoughts of like, what do we make of this? Um, and then maybe this week in your gospel community, you guys can chop this up and debate uh, your perspective, what you think. 
So here's kind of three, three schools of thought on what, on what we do with this. One school of thought is that Mark wrote 9 through 20, just to go, I, we don't really know why it's not in the oldest of manuscripts, but let's just say Mark wrote it. Now, there's not many people that would agree with this, not many people that would say this. So if you want to think this, you're kind of on an island, but hey, be you. Not me. Augustine thought this. He's probably one of the only ones. Augustine went this route. But the earliest church fathers, it seemed that they didn't even have any reference of these 11 verses, 9 through 20. Um, anybody that does any kind of textual criticism that studies the, the actual, the, the syntax and the writing and the language would tell you that verses 9 through 20 are not consistent at all with the rest of Mark's gospel. It's clear. Just like maybe a, a handwriting expert would be able to go, verified handwriting, eat, not the same guy. Uh, the people who do textual criticism would say that just by the nature of the language in verses 9 through 20, it's not Markin. Mark didn't write it. Okay, so then if Mark didn't write it, what do we do? Well, there's two schools of thought after that. One is that Mark actually intended to stop his, his gospel account at verse 8. And so what happened is, is that later, scribes added to bonus content to his gospel according to church tradition. So there's, a lot, there's some people that think this, that Mark intended. His plan was kind of to slam the brakes at the end of his gospel. In fact, I emailed my hermeneutics professor, who is a New Testament scholar. I emailed him this week, and I just said, hey, what's your take on this? What's your opinion? I was just curious what he would say. And he actually emailed me back, and he said, I'm actually in this camp. I think Mark intended to slam the brakes, to have an abrupt ending to his gospel account. And he told me, he said this. He said, this was his email. I think the gospel ends with the question, will you believe the good news that God raised Jesus from the dead without seeing his body? It says the women at the tomb are faced with this, and so are the readers. And so he's saying he thinks that Mark intended to end his gospel at verse, at, at verse 8, and so then what happened is that later on, according to church tradition, some scribes added in these little bonus bits to help us know Consistent with Matthew, consistent with Luke, consistent with John, that Jesus appeared and that Jesus commissioned his disciples. So that's one school of thought. The final school of thought is that Mark actually wrote an ending, so he didn't intend his gospel to stop at verse 8 with the women seeing him and then leaving terrified. He didn't intend that. He actually wrote an ending, and we don't have it. We lost it. Perhaps... Uh, a scroll was damaged. Perhaps it was torn and lost. And so as it's copied and copied and copied and copied, it just eventually, we just don't have it. And so therefore, these uh, ancient scribes, according, with, according to church tradition, came in and filled in what would have been there had we had it. The type of content that would have been there had we had, we had it. In fact, uh, a lot of scholars think this because it would go against all tradition for a scribe to add to an ancient document on their own accord. And so, most, so, so this is kind of where I land. I actually think Mark intended to write an ending that included the appearing of Jesus and the commissioning of Jesus, and we just don't have it. And so what we, what we have here is we have uh, church tradition filling in what would have been there had we had it. And you have to keep in mind, everything that we read in verses 9 through 20 is consistent with what is found in Matthew, Luke, John, and in the events of Acts. Yes, even the snake bite and the poison. Go read Acts chapter 28. Paul is bitten by a viper. He takes in venomous poison and he doesn't die. And the people are amazed. 
and he preaches the gospel to them. His preaching is accompanied with signs. So that means that while we ought to be cautious with verses 9 through 20, in other words, it doesn't carry the same weight that the rest of Mark and the rest of Scripture carries, we ought to be cautious with it. It wasn't written by Mark, inspired uh, uh, by Mark, but we still can learn from it. It's still valuable. And most importantly, it informs us and it gives us insight into the framework and the mindset of the earliest Christians, the earliest Christ followers. Let me give you a primary takeaway. This is the primary thing I think we can take away from verse 9 through 20, is that the early church, the earliest Christians, who saw Jesus for who he is, who crowned him as king, who followed him in discipleship, they took up their cross, they became servants, even in persecution. The earliest Christians had no concept of following Jesus. They had no concept of the Christian life that wasn't a missional life. Do you hear me? The earliest Christians had no concept of Christ following that didn't mean their lives existed for his message, a missional life. What do we see that the risen Jesus does? We see it here in this bonus bit in Mark. We see it at the end of Matthew chapter 28. We see it at the end of Luke chapter 24 and Acts 1.8. We see it in John 17. What does the risen Jesus do? He commissions his followers. Every gospel account has a great commission. He sends. He sends the women to go tell Peter and the other disciples. He commissions the men to go into all the nations. His disciples become apostles filled with his spirit. There's, there's no concept of discipleship in the first century that does not exist proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. There's no concept of Christ following that does not mean uh, living my life to tell the message of the risen Christ. There's no concept of the church in the first century that did not exist to display and declare the good news of Jesus to those who have not heard. There's no concept of church as just a, a spiritual shopping mall where I show up and get filled up with my spiritual high and then I go back to my own life. There's no concept of that in the first century. The church exists to declare and display the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ in all of life. In the same way that it would make no sense to separate the cross from the resurrection. The Christian life would make no sense if we separated the cross and the resurrection. It'd make no sense. In the same way the Christian life would make no sense if we separated the resurrection from the Great Commission. Do you see what I'm saying? This is the good news of Jesus. It's good news that, that we receive and that we're transformed by, and it's good news that we live, a good news that we tell. Because Jesus is risen, this is what Mark's ending shows us. Because Jesus is risen, we live. We live by his cross, and we live for his crown in all things. That's the message of Mark's ending. Because Jesus is risen, we live. We live transformed lives. We see it in the ending here, don't we? Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, transformed by Jesus. Her life repurposed by Jesus. Peter, a, a fisherman who, man, what a story of Peter. As we've walked through, we've seen his triumphs and we've seen his failures. Peter repurposed and becomes this, uh, this apostle that God uses, this mighty apostle and whom God uses to build the church. 
Because Jesus is risen, we live, and we live transformed lives. Jesus transforms those who follow him and keep following him day by day, moment by moment. And we live by the resurrection. We live to tell. We live transformed lives that display the power of the gospel, and we live to tell of the hope that we have. We live, as Mark's ending says, to proclaim the gospel to all creation. We live to make disciples. And this brings us back to the purpose of Mark's gospel. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the only Savior. He's the only Savior. Do you want to get unburdened from your sin? Do you want to get, uh, do you want to get free of your failure? Do you want to get healed of your wounds? Do you want to get made right with God? Do you want to have access to his loving presence and to his abundant grace? Mark says it's only through Jesus. He's God's only provision, and he is a proven Savior. He's a proven Savior. What does it mean to follow him? Well, it means that we give up on this life, that we turn from living for the fleeting and failing and fragile things of this world, and we live, we learn to live for him and his kingdom in all things, living a transformed life, living a life that tells of the good news. This is Mark's message from start to finish. My hope and my prayer has been that Mark's message over the last 14 months that we've been in and out of Mark, that Mark's message has helped shape us as a congregation, that it's helped us to see Jesus more clearly, more beautifully, more powerfully. We've, it's helped us to really crown him with authority over our lives, that it's helped shape us in the call of discipleship, that we know that following Jesus can't just be a, an add-on or an accessory in our life, but it really demands our all. My hope and my prayer is that Mark's message has shaped us to help us to continue to be a diverse family that's centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ in all things, a family that's learning and living the way of Jesus in all things. He is our king, and he deserves our all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, beautiful book that you've given us. Thank you that it testifies to us of the saving power of Jesus Christ. What a Savior we have in Jesus. Lord, we, we pray that as we close the, the study of Mark's gospel, Lord, that you have taught us and that you have helped us and that you've shaped us and that you've instructed us. We pray, Lord, that we would be a church that's known for our love for Jesus. We proclaim Jesus with our lives. We proclaim Jesus in word and in deed. We pray that this study would have helped us to follow Jesus more faithfully in discipleship. Pray even now that as we've heard your word, how Mark begins and ends, the Spirit, you would convict us gently as you do of ways in which our lives are not given over to you, that are not lived for your kingdom. Help us to see the beauty of your kingdom and the fleetingness of this world, that we would be more faithful to you all things. As we enter into a time of response now, we pray, Lord, that you would minister to us. Holy Spirit, that you would be in our midst. As we come to the table, that you would nourish us, strengthen us today. As we sing, and as we worship, and as we pray, and as we give, that you would be honored and glorified. Jesus Christ, our King. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.